Welcome to Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm your host, Kelly Willis-Green. 19th century French historian Jules Michelet once said, if you wish to ruin yourself, marry a rich wife. I don't know if he was speaking from experience, but when women bring significantly greater assets into a relationship, the challenges to gender norms are as relevant today as they were in the 1800s. Someone who knows a lot about this is my guest today, Dr. Jamie Traeger Muni. She's a wealth psychologist, researcher, and coach specializing in the emotional impact of wealth on inheritors, women, and relationships. Her current field of study is a research project into financially diverse couples. She's exploring the unique dynamics within heterosexual relationships when the female partner holds the wealth. It's work that's close to her heart. Jamie is herself one half of a financially diverse couple. Married to her husband, Evan, for almost 30 years, Jamie came into her marriage as an inheritor and shareholder in a family business. Back in the 1990s, as a clinical psychologist in private practice, Jamie says her client's reluctance to talk about money was what drew her into the field. I can um, almost set my watch by 20 minutes into speaking to a new potential client. They said, I had no idea that wealth psychology even existed. I have nowhere else to talk about it. And that's really why I got into this field because I lived in a fairly affluent area in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was really curious. My clients would talk to me about everything, but they weren't talking to me about money. And I'm always curious about conversations that aren't being had. And sometimes they talked to me about money. You know, if I had some graduate students from Berkeley and they didn't have enough money, but when people had enough or more than enough, it was like money wasn't even an element. It wasn't discussed. It was crickets. So how did you get them to open up? How did you get them to start talking about money? When I started to talk about it, when I started to ask about it and you know, then again, they had that same thing, like, oh, that's something that we could talk about. I do an extensive process. I've always done this extensive sort of intake process with clients, which um, is a genogram. And it's sort of a psychological family tree looking at patterns over time. So I get a lot of data already about people's past, but I make sure to ask questions about you know, what kind of socioeconomic status did you grow up in and start to to feel in like I would around other issues around money. And people were very surprised. And once that permission was granted, and particularly if people had money, and um, then I would add something like, you know, share with me some gifts, but also some challenges that come from having money then their eyes really would go wide because it's like, wow. The floodgates open. Right, like we're allowed to have challenges, like that's, that's a thing. Then as I you know, do in all my work, I try to really normalize experiences. As soon as I give them that permission to speak more openly, they're so happy. And when I start to normalize and say, you know, I hear, similar things like that all the time. And really what's fascinating to me, Kelly, is all the client populations that I've worked with in my, you know, since the beginning of training, um, coming up on almost 30 years of working with clients, 
families of wealth and the situation that wealth holders are in and find challenging are more alike than any other population that I've ever worked with. And my belief is that's because we don't talk about it. And anything that's kept secretive like that tends to run a similar course and have similar places that are inflection points or um, challenge points. And if we keep ignoring it, you know, I say to my clients, it's like if you go to a Michelin star restaurant and you come home with delicious leftovers and you put them in the refrigerator, what's in that box is good. But if you ignore it in your refrigerator over a period of time, I guarantee you it will go bad. Not because the food in itself wasn't good, but because of the lack of examining and the lack of looking in it and saying, oh, is this still fresh or not? What are those similarities that you're seeing across that cohort? A common storyline is with inheritors that they grew up in a family of wealth, but they really often have no idea to the extent that they're wealthy. You know, they see themselves as much more similar to everybody else that they're growing up with. But then usually something happens in college where they turn 21 and they start to come into the money. And often, I mean, you would think that this wouldn't be that much of a similar situation, but I can't tell you when I'm doing a group of inheritors that everybody in the room will nod their heads at some kind of storyline that's similar to this. So they get something usually, either they're directed to talk to the the family office or the estate attorney in the family. It's usually not the parents, or sometimes they just simply get something in the mail that says, you know, you now have X million dollars in your bank account. And they're completely flooded and overwhelmed. You know, they're, they're living with friends who are eating, you know, craft dinner and ramen every night. So they want to hide that. They don't want to be known as wealthy. They have no one to talk to about it. It's like being a little bit like a deer in a headlight. And then there's all these feelings of shame, embarrassment, you know, what did I do to earn this worthiness? Um, and that can be very, very hard to, to navigate on your own, particularly because if you start talking to these college roommates who, you know, if you are being honest and say you've come into a lot of money and it's overwhelming and, you know, you feel so much pressure to invest it well or to do something good with it um, and you're overwhelmed, people look at you like, you know, well, poor you. Right. What's the shame about? That's an interesting word. I think that two of the most difficult emotions, both for us to experience, but certainly to be on the receiving end of, are jealousy and envy. And there's a very, I've never worked with any other thing where people both simultaneously, they want more, they want their own wealth, but they also have very negative feelings towards wealth holders. So it's, you know, we envy you, we're jealous, but we also have a lot of a priori judgment just because you're the member of this group. 
Um, and again, because we don't talk about it, those things, you know, aren't so obvious. They're more, you know, they can be more subconscious or more subtle, you know, people talking or whispering. I think the shame is, and we also live in a culture, you know, in the United States and in most of the Western world, where we put a lot of value on being self-made, on making it yourself. And when you've inherited wealth, you haven't earned it. Um, do you deserve it? Do you deserve to have so much more than other people? And because there's nowhere to sort of work those feelings through, they just, you know, they become like the monster in your bedroom at night. It's, you know, if you could turn on the light and have the conversation, you could see it's really just your bathrobe over your, your chair that's making that thing look like a monster. But because you don't have any place to go with it, um, there's a lot of shame. And I, I would say of my inheritor clients, upwards of 90% struggle with shame. And, you know... It's, it's a very different situation than um, how we normally think about being closeted. And I'm not comparing it to, you know, some of the, um, the ways that, that people who are gay have been discriminated against. But there is a certain quality of hiding and keeping an experience secret. That's also hard because it's always this one side of yourself that you don't want people to know. So you're always behind a certain mask, you know, maybe they find out certain aspects of your life, but there's always this mask that you're hiding behind and fearing that you're going to get found out. Pretty hard to be, to live an authentic life in that set of circumstances then. How do you, how do you then help them? You know, again, I think one of the most beneficial things is providing a safe place for people to explore whatever their feelings are and for people to be able to come in without judgment to explore the, the whole gamut of feelings that they might have about having wealth um, and not have to self-edit themselves because they feel guilty that they have more or they're uncomfortable, whatever those ambivalent feelings are, that they can just explore them. And then also the normalization of being able to say, you know, this is why I want to go out and do podcasts like this, because I want to st start to raise consciousness. Listening to Jamie describe how these young inheritors are so unprepared for wealth, I was reminded of my interview with legacy coach Danielle Saputo in episode two. Danielle's advice to parents and grandparents is to be careful not to give money without also adding a message to it. I would also say not without financial and emotional preparation. According to the Williams Group Wealth Consultancy, 70% of families lose their wealth in the second generation and 90% lose it by the third. A lot of it, as you'll hear from Jamie, comes down to communication, or lack thereof. And if money is a taboo subject within intergenerational families, it's also a major hot button for many couples, as Jamie discovered doing her research with financially diverse couples. 
I can't tell you how many people we've interviewed and they said, well, I'm willing to talk about it, but I could never ask my, my husband or my wife to, to be part of the study because it's such a, um, we don't talk about it. And it's such a hot button issue that I couldn't even show them that this study exists. That's how kind of taboo it is. Um, and, you know, again, what I know is those things that aren't being discussed will cause problems. It, it, it's almost a guarantee, not because there's anything wrong, again, with having people come with different levels of financial assets to a marriage, but because anything we're not communicating, if it's important enough, it will cause a breakdown in the relationship. What have you found so far? You mentioned that the unique challenges and opportunities or blessings of wealth. What are they for these couples? Like I would think most people would look at those couples and say, look, they don't have the financial worries that most couples have, particularly young couples. They're coming in, they already have financial security. They can focus on other areas of their lives, work, raising families, their communities. But I think what you have found is they have unique challenges. So what are some of those that you're finding? You know, just for example, a young couple who maybe they've, um, you know, they've gotten their undergraduate degree, but now they want to go back to graduate school. And let's say that the, cup, the, the woman has, you know, most people at a young age, they haven't inherited the money outright. They have living parents, they stand to inherit, they're benefiting, they're getting money. And so the parents of the husband say, we're going to pay for your graduate school. You know, we don't want you guys to work. We want you to go to graduate school and really just concentrate on your education. Well, that sounds great. And anybody who's paying off student loans, I'm sure would say, wow. And it also can be a challenge to have your in-laws pay for your school to feel, you know, there can be a sense of disempowerment there, yeah, um, a sense of discomfort, you know, and it, it's not only necessarily in for you as the husband, but how, how do your parents feel if your parents can't afford right. to pay or they don't choose to pay? So then, you know, there's there can be this weird power dynamic that could happen between different families. You know, say you marry into a family with money and they love to travel all the time and they take you on amazing exotic vacations. So then do you devote all the time, you know, the limited time that you have off, maybe from, um, you know, your education, you know, from school or from uh, uh, starting a new job to going on those fabulous vacations? Or do you have more equity of splitting time between different families? And none of these things are problems in and of themselves, but if you don't talk about it, so say I'm the husband in um, a financially diverse relationship and, you know, my wife's family takes us on all these trips and I'm so grateful and I'm so happy, but I'm also potentially a little resentful because when do we get to see my family? And, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. what if my family can't take us on big trips? Aren't they still valuable? 
you know, what if we have kids and your family buys them tremendous, um, you know, gifts for the holidays or for their birthday and my family can't compete with that. So there's, there's all these potential issues. And if it's too, too electric to even start to have the conversation or to have the tools to know how to have that communication in a way that will be effective and really honoring of both sides, then you can start to see how, you know, resentment might build up. Or, or feeling lesser or feeling shame that they can't, can't offer the same, that their family just can't offer the same much as they would dearly love to. Yes. Or what does it mean if, you know, I, if I go into a marriage and think, wow, I can never be as successful as my wife's father or my wife's mother, you know, I'll never be that level of financial success and about really being careful about what we, how we define success. But here we're talking about financial success. So am I always going to be lesser than? So if someone's listening to this and is relating to this type of situation, what do you say to them? Well, the first thing I'd like to say, self-serving, but I think not self-serving is I'd love to have you participate because only by knowing what the act, you know, I can say from my vantage point, I come from a financially diverse um, marriage as well. You know, I came into the marriage with more money than my husband. We happen to talk about it a lot. And he's part of, um, he's one of the researchers in this study. Um, but without knowing what the whole landscape looks like for couples, it's very hard to really um, make sure that we're working with, we're supporting couples in the right way. So that would be my first, you know, suggestion. My second suggestion would be, I've sort of, you know, already we can see from the research that there's, I, I've kind of made like a shorthand of, three suggestions and they're all C's. So the first one is courage. It really takes a lot of courage to sit down with your partner and say, there's this difference in our families. There's this difference that we bring and it impacts us. Let's talk about it in a way that's open um, and this leads to the second C, which is curious. So really asking questions from a place of curiosity. What was it like to grow up with that kind of wealth? Was it, was it all good? Were there unique challenges? As opposed to some sort of certainty of like, well, you had everything growing up. So you, you, know, you couldn't have suffered. Um, and then the final C is communication. And that really, you know, if you took one theme from this entire conversation that we've had is that without communication, without communicating with yourself about the things that um, you might not be looking at and feel ambivalent about, without communicating with your partner in the most important relationships, things that aren't necessarily inherently bad, have the potential to go bad and, you know, to get spoiled. Um, and 
I just, I, I'm surprised, but I see now just from the resistance of people being willing to even tell their partner about the existence of the study, that there is so much that is not being spoken here and discussed and openly looked at between couples. Yeah, it, it's easier to kick the can. There's another C down the road uh, and just postpone those conversations. But I think that's really good common sense that's probably uncommonly practiced. So courage, curiosity, and communications. What about the cultural norms? I mean, you're living in Israel now. You were born and raised in the U.S., worked in the U.S. for a long time. Your clientele is multi-jurisdictional, I would imagine, global. Are there cultural norms that play a role in financially diverse couples and the challenges that they face? There are, but they're much more subtle um, than you would think. And, um, you know, I don't know, we haven't yet been able to study enough people to really tease that out because mostly we're still seeing the glaring similarities. Just how large the global population of financially diverse couples is, is unknown. But here are some statistics on women and wealth. According to a report from WealthX, there are almost 300,000 people globally with a net worth of more than 30 million US. Women represent just 10%, so roughly 30,000. Compared to men, women in this category are five times more likely to have inherited their wealth, either from their family of origin or a spouse. Although it's worth noting that 45% of the women in this exclusive group are self-made, a number that is no doubt on the rise given the growth in female entrepreneurship. So it's worth trying to untangle the barbed wire that so often engulfs relationships where women hold the wealth. I asked Jamie if there was ever a time when the financial diversity in her own marriage had been a stumbling block and how she and her husband overcame it. Um, good question. I'm trying to think of a good example. I would say uh, a good example is around the travel. I grew up in a family that um, really, really loves to travel. I mean, both sides of the family really love to travel and we have to really be careful about making sure that we aren't just spending more time with my side of the family because there's more travel happening or greater capacity to have everybody included um because you know our value really isn't to favor one side of the family over the other my husband's family lives on one coast and my family lives on the other coast of the United States. So really having the value of the importance of, you know, if our kids, our kids are in their early 20s, if they go for a visit to really pay, you know, equal time to both sides of the family and being with it and not to get lured by, you know, the ability to maybe go do something. The trappings. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard because it is a lure, even though I know that my kids, you know, love both sides of the family equally. But I, I think we try to really talk about it. I mean, if I think that I grew up different in, in a way, my parents always really talked to us a lot about money. Um, you know, my mom grew up 
middle class, very middle class. My dad grew up very lower middle class. So, you know, there was difference already in their relationship, but they've always been very open about it. And subsequently, you know, my husband and I met when we were, we were young, we met um, our junior year of college. So, you know, we kind of grew up together and we put our money together right away. And it's just because there was never a sense of sort of my money, his money, we've been able to be open and we talk about it. We talk about it a lot. You know, we've had hard times with it. You know, we've been married almost 30 years now. But again, staying in the game of the communication has allowed those issues to just be issues we work through, like other issues in our marriage, as opposed to things that are shoved, you know, at the back of the refrigerator to go bad. I could relate to Jamie's example around travel. I'm also one half of a financially diverse couple, although ours is a more traditional disparity. My husband and I have been married for five years and we have a great relationship, but I remember planning trips early on. It was always a negotiation. I was determined to pay my half, but I wanted to stay within my means, which meant he had to compromise on the standards he was used to. I was afraid that if I let him pay for things, I'd be giving up power in the relationship and my own independence. We had a lot of conversations about it, about what was fair. And over time, we've come to an arrangement where we each contribute according to our means and we're comfortable with that. I know it's a tiny violin, but I can relate to the mixed blessings of coming into unearned wealth through marriage. In fact, it's wealth that's not even yours, it belongs to someone else, and you just have the privilege of enjoying its benefits. I asked Jamie, as I do with all my guests, a few questions about her relationship with wealth. Who is someone that you admire in terms of their handling of wealth? I, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna say my parents because you know that's who I, I see I have had the largest example of. And um, I think that both in terms of rooting us from a young age in values that weren't about how big a house you had, what, you know, how big a car you drove. It was more about experiences. We traveled a lot. So we saw people living very, very different lives. And my parents always brought conversations about, you know, what would it, what might it be like to live this kind of life? And, um, you know, a beautiful conversation. We went to Africa when my kids were, I think they were young teens and it was my parents and my family, my siblings, um, couldn't go for whatever reason. And we went to this small village and um, my son had borrowed my father-in-law's camera um, and brought it and he was taking pictures and we were talking to people that lived in mud huts. And my son and my father had this most incredible conversation at lunch afterwards because my son was really uncomfortable. He, he was like, wow, you know, I have a camera that probably in terms of money is worth more than those people's houses. And that, and I'm, you know, 14, 15. And my dad brought this beautiful conversation about dignity and about meaning and, you know, asked my son if he thought that the people in that village looked impoverished in terms of 
the lives that they were living and the joy that they had in their lives. And, you know, we were there a short amount of time, but um, I, I just thought it was such, you know, and I just sat back and I was quiet. It was such a beautiful conversation about, you know, what does it mean to live a life of meaning and does it hinge on money and what you could buy? Um, and, you know, that, I, I see that still reflected in how my kids live their lives now. That's a great answer. And it sets up the next question as I'm going to ask you, you have a healthy relationship with money, but what is one thing that makes you a little uncomfortable about the fact that you have wealth? Mm, the one thing that's, that's harder to find the one thing because there, you know, there's often several things. Um, it used to be, um, bringing people to my house. Um, I, um, you know, my first love was in college and, um, the first time he came home with me, you know, and, and we dated for a long time. We'd said we loved each other. You know, I knew that he came from a much more financially modest background. Um, I don't think I kept anything secret, but as soon as we drove into my driveway, he said, you know, you've got to stop the car. And I said, why? What, what's wrong? And he said, oh my God, you're not the person I thought you were. And it was like one of those moments, one of those very few moments, you have the perfect comeback at the perfect moment. And I just looked at him and I said, Kevin, nothing about me has changed. The only thing that's changed in this moment is your perception of me. And, you know, God love him. He was like, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we went on from there, but it was this moment of like, oh my God, you know, you, you're not going to love me now. I'm not the person you thought I was. Mm -hmm. And you know, was there something else? Cause you said you used to feel uncomfortable about that. Um, yeah. I mean, my house was a big thing. Uh, we have built a really beautiful house here in, in Israel. I, um, I had cancer about nine years ago and my project during chemo and radiation was working to build this house. And I made the decision that if I waited till later to have my dream house, I don't know what later would be. You know, I was, I was uh, 45 years old and I had stage three cancer. So I, I, I feel, I feel less embarrassed now to bring people to my house because I feel like it's a house that was built with love. It's not, I, I hope it's not a house that, for me, it's not a house that's meant to show off anything. It's a house that's meant to be, to, to bring the people that are living in it um, a real sense of, of peace and, and calm and that, that people that visit will also feel that sense. So, you know, I've been able to shift how it is, but having said that, I still am always conscious when somebody comes to my house of what I have by, you know, not entirely my own earning that maybe somebody else doesn't have the ability to have. And to recognize that, I hope with, with humility and gratitude. Last question. If you finish the sentence, 
to me, money is? These are hard questions, Kelly. (laughs) To me, money is a resource, but it's not the only resource and it's not the most important resource. Thanks for listening to Serious Coin. I'm Kelly Willis-Green. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni, for bringing light to a murky subject. For a taboo topic, we shared at a lot of sharing. If you would like to participate in the confidential research on financially diverse couples or would like help exploring your own relationship with wealth, you can find Jamie at thewealthlegacygroup.org. This show was produced by Lead Podcasting. Special thanks to Amanda Capito and Michael Allen for their production and Bob Ramsey of Ramsey Writes for consulting. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Series Coin Podcast is provided for your general interest only and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you take any financial decisions.